<laughs> uh, by presenting the background of this project. So the comparison between Ireland and Pakistan that we present today is part of a much bigger project that Luke and I um, are carrying out. So the big umbrella under which the comparison uh, stems from is this idea of new dominion constitutionalism. What we're looking at, we're looking at um, the way through which transitions to independence of a number of non-settler colonies of the, of the British Empire acquired independence. And what we're looking at in particular is new dominions. So that pertains South Asia the most. So the first one is Ireland in, uh, in the 20s, uh, India and Pakistan in 47, Sri Lanka in 1948. Then, of course, there is a big cleavage, and I guess for historians, and that's 1949, which is the year in which Ireland leaves the Commonwealth, and it's the year in which India remains in the Commonwealth as a republic. So for us, what changes is a question of nomenclature. So it's the idea <coughs> that there are a number of other countries that after 1949 acquire independence on the same kind of constitutional basis. What we're talking about is Commonwealth realms, uh, but in terms of the constitutional structures that we're interested in, that continuing link with the crown for this kind of transitional constitutional arrangements, it's actually the same. So some of the other examples would be from East Africa, from West Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Gambia, Tanganyika, Uganda, Kenya, Malawi, Mauritius, um, the Commonwealth, Caribbean, Fiji, and a number of other countries. So what we're looking at, it's a brief uh, period of inter... brief or not quite so brief in some countries, and I'm going to speak to that in a moment. So why are we in, what are we distinguishing these non-settler colonies' um, transitions to independence in constitutional terms from? Well, first of all, we distinguish them from old dominions, and those are Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. We also distinguish this form of constitutionalism from countries that became republics straight away. So Burma, Sudan, Malaya, Northern Rhodesia, um, Bechuanaland, uh, and Botswana. We also have a batch of countries that were not colonized at all. One of the examples is one of the countries that I've done quite a lot of work on, which is Nepal. Um, you can see British influences in constitutional terms in all of those. But we've identified these forms, and I hope that we'll <coughs> be able to explore that um, a bit more. Uh, in terms of the comparison Ireland and Pakistan, I think it is uh, unusual, uh, even if I know that my, one of my PhD supervisors, Matt Nelson, was here a couple of weeks ago to talk about the same comparison. Um, I guess we look at it from a slightly different uh, perspective. So we kind of uh, try to emulate the work that Faisal has done in his book Muslim Zion, uh, looking at Pakistan and Israel, Hannah Lerner's work on uh, um, constitution, uh, making constitution in deeply divided societies, looking at Israel, India, and Ireland. Um, in terms of the comparison, what we're presenting you today is very much work in progress, so I hope you'll be uh, gracious with us and patient. Um, the idea is that this is part of a much bigger project, and Luke and I are trying to engage uh, with Pakistan and Ireland uh, in a more detailed way to tease out um, some of the big questions. In terms of the fault line that we see emerging and that the structure of dominion constitutionalism allows us to, um, to study is the interplay of and the tensions between democratization at the time of independence and uh, an emergence of authoritarianism. 
So the question that we have is really, how do these constitutional structures devised in London, uh, implemented uh, in the post-colony, have an impact on, on this relationship? Thank you. Uh, in terms of, um, if I give you, if I put up here um, the framework, the time frame uh, for the periods that we're studying, you immediately get a sense of what we're talking about. And I'm going to just focus on the South Asian cases because I think uh, Luke is going to talk about Ireland uh, in more detail. So if you look at the periodization of what we're looking at, it's actually for India is a very brief period. It's between 1947 and 1950. For Pakistan is much longer, 1947 until 1956, and for Ceylon, later Sri Lanka, 1948-1972. What is it that we're looking at? So if you look at uh, 1947 as a date for India and Pakistan, what you get is uh, the independence was gained on the basis of dominion status, which is the same as uh, Ceylon in 1948. Constitutionally, it means that while uh, India and Pakistan were independent from the point of view of inter internal policy making and foreign policy making, constitutionally they retain a link with the crown. <coughs> in Ceylon it's even longer, um, this kind of arrangement, and part of the argument that <laughs> is emerging from the project is that actually the longer this period is, the more problematic um, and, and embattled the constitutional framework became. And I hope we'll, we'll be able to make that clear why that is. So, so how do we interpret that? Well, first of all, it is a historical period which is defi defined by constitutional forms. But also, we're lawyers. So what interests us are the institutional structures that make up the constitutional system. In terms of methodology, this is a comparative constitutional law project. So we do focus on legal structure, but actually we've done quite a lot of work in the archives. Uh, for instance, for Pakistan, I've looked quite a lot at Ivor Jennings' private papers during his involvement there. I've been in the archives in Kew. I've been at the archives in, uh, in Washington, D.C. And it's, the focus of my presentation on Pakistan is going to be particularly on the Tamizuddin litigation in 1954-1955. So um, in terms of uh, what we're trying to do, we're trying to engage with our discipline, which is comparative constitutional law, which sadly is quite, uh, still quite Eurocentric. Just to give you an example, one of the seminal textbooks that we use um, in our LLM class in comparative constitutional law um, presents a taxonomy and basically lumps together post-colonial <coughs> constitutions, which is basically two-thirds of the word constitution, just as post-colonial. And the idea is that there is no nuance in that analysis at all. It's uh, somehow reminiscent of Neil Ferguson's idea of the West and the rest, uh, and that seems to be still quite the norm, <laughs> sadly, in our discipline. And of course, you know, it's also the relationship between the former colonies of the, of the empire and British constitutional exceptionalism. And I think all these debates are becoming particular, uh, particularly relevant in the current UK context. And I'm going to speak to that in a moment. So the idea is really to add some nuance to this post-colonial idea. And I think we've identified a particular framework which is, uh, which is particularly relevant, which is dominion constitutionalism. In terms of the, uh, I figured that out. <laughs> In terms of the, um, the, 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 how does it start the comparison? I think really the independence of Ireland is the starting point uh, for the disintegration of the empire. So, you know, we put a quote here, if we lose Ireland, we have lost the empire. And that's really the beginning of the end. And the beginning also of using constitutions to negotiate political transitions. 
what we're arguing here is that actually dominion constitutionalism is the first constitutional form of um, essentially of interim constitution. It's a new constitutional form to manage political transitions. It's expedient, and in some cases it works, in some cases it really, really doesn't. Also, I think there are a number of, of comparisons. I think Ireland uh, comes back as an example in terms of continuities and in relation to um, legal legacies, which is what we're interested in. Also for the UK, in a number of, of levels, a lot of the anti-terrorism legislation which is developed here really stems uh, from questions uh, in, in Ireland um, since pretty much uh, even before the Easter Rising. In terms of structure of the presentation, there are three points that we want to make, and we kind of divided that accordingly. First of all, in political terms, what we're interested in exploring is the legacy of this model that we're <coughs> trying to identify. And what we argue is that uh, the emphasis uh, on executive authority on the one hand, and on the other hand, the openness, the vagueness of this dominion constitutionalism model really affects the balance of power between institutional actors in a very significant way. So when we talk about the so-called Westminster model and the way in which it is exported, there is a tendency to focus on the efficient secret of the constitution, the relationship between uh, parliament and, and, and the government. But actually what we see in Ireland and in South Asia that changes in those years is actually the importance of the judiciary. That's really um, the problematic nature, the, the majoritarian nature of the Westminster model and how uh, and the political and legal battles in South Asia are to overcome uh, that, uh, that framework and actually try to establish counter-majoritarian checks uh, by legal means. That leads, this, leads me to the second point, which is in legal terms, what is it that is important? In the comparison between Ireland and Pakistan, what we see is a progressive subversion of the initial Dominion Constitution. And that has two implications. One, with regards to the role of the judiciary. And we argue that that really uh, sowed the seeds of judicial uh, activism and increasing intervention in all of these uh, jurisdictions. And second, it has a massive impact on the status and work of constituent assemblies in both countries. And finally, and this is the point which is really work in progress, is the impact of partition on questions of religion and nationalism that I think is the least developed part uh, of our work so far. So what we're going to do, we're going to engage first uh, with the first two points. We're going to deal with them together, the political and legal legacies, and that's really the, the heart of the presentation today. So what we've done is to reflect on what was the British Constitution like? How was that exported through this uh, dominion model? So to start from there, wh what is it typical about the British Constitution? And I think you know, what's becoming exciting for us at this point with this project is that a lot of the things that we're learning about the post-colonial dimension are actually becoming really quite relevant in the current Brexit <laughs> context. So it's the first time that it's a question of bringing it all back home uh, and looking at um, post-colonial models of managing transitions and constitutional crisis becoming relevant actually um, <coughs> for the UK as well. So what do we have here? What, what's the British constitution? Why is it so exceptional? And if it's so exceptional and historically grounded, how can it be exported? So if that's the model, uh, the constitutional model, upon which uh, most of the countries that we're considering 
uh, gain independence, what sort of lessons can we learn? Well, what we know about the British Constitution is that really it's an organic, historical uh, jigsaw of different uh, legal and non-legal sources. So it's pragmatic, it's adaptable, uh, it promises um, uh, democracy uh, through, the, um, through political constitutionalism. It's not entrenched, so you have just need a simple majority for constitutional amendments. The flexibility of this model has been praised. And then the question, of course, is always, but then the first task, the main task of a constitution is to prevent absolute uh, rule. So how do these uh, legal structures um, manage in accomplishing that task? And of course, you always have a, a cultural justification for all of that. In terms of essential features, what you have, you have the centrality of what was the imperial parliament at Westminster. Now we drop the imperial, but we keep the principle. Uh, we have a dominant executive that controls the majority in the legislature, the uh, well-known expression by budget of an elected dictatorship, and extensive prerogative powers, that kind of ancient uh, part of the constitution uh, that now, of course, is making front page after the Miller litigation. And rereading the Tamizuddin decisions, actually, you realize that Pakistan has seen all of that in, in the mid-50s already. Uh, there are questions about uh, the unwritten conventions um, that surround executive power and how they regulate these unwritten rules, these customary rules, which are political, which are not legal, um, which cannot be litigated in court. So it's really a kind of clever, uh, specific type of constitutional architecture uh, that you have in the UK. Most significantly, and that I think where a lot of the current scholarship on uh, Westminster-derived model actually misses the point, is the idea that you talk about the Westminster model and you talk about contemporary Indian, contemporary Pakistan as Westminster-derived misses the point of the judiciary and what the judiciary can do. Courts in this country do not have the power to strike down legislation. So when you compare to the point in which the, the Supreme Court in India is, which is the, the most powerful Supreme Court in the world that can strike down constitutional amendments, you're really looking at a very different set of um, constitutional circumstances. Also, the position on Bill of Rights. The UK had its first Bill of <coughs> Rights, uh, technically, in 2000, then when the Human Rights Act came into force. Well, as we know, all the other Dominion Constitution uh, got those, um, well, all the other independent Constitution got, got those um, much earlier on. So, the question really is, how then do uh, former colonies deal with the lack of counter-majoritarian checks of this flexible constitution. So what we distinguish here, and I'm not going to dwell on it uh, very long, it's old <laughs> dominion constitutionalism, and that's the form uh, that developed by cons through constitutional conventions in the uh, old settler colonies of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. It's just interesting to look at the key features to get a sense of what that entailed. First of all, the, the demand for self-government um, originated very early in this, uh, in this part of the empire and was expressed in constitutional terms through the loyalty to the crown. So the crown is really the pivotal uh, constitutional mechanism here. It develops through constitutional practice and that's mirrored in the, the enduring presence of a governor general. The governor general is the representative of the crown 
And while it remains quite uncontroversial, I think, in the old dominions, it really becomes quite uh, a source of contention in the new dominions. It retains a, there is a right of appeal that is retained to the Judicial Committee of the <coughs> Council, and the Imperial Parliament retains ultimate uh, sovereignty. And finally, we get to um, New Dominion constitutionalism and what um, that is. So, if you look at um, if you look at India and Pakistan, the Dominion Constitution is the Government of India Act 1935 as amended by the Indian Dependence Act 1947. So, if you think about that about that example, what do you have in terms of features that we can generalize? Well, it's a constitutional settlement which is imposed from London with very limited uh, local inputs. If you compare with Sri Lanka, what you actually have is not even an act of parliament, it's an order in council, which is basically uh, a legislative measure passed by the government. There, um, this essentially what uh, these constitutional uh, measures do is to secure a smooth political transition. So in a way, <coughs> if you look at India and Pakistan, India, the Indian independent leaders accepted dominion status as a way of getting the British out as soon as possible. It was expedient uh, from, uh, from, both, from both sides, from the uh, <coughs> independentist leaders and from the British government point of view. The international context of um, these constitutional transitions is significant. For Ireland, uh, it's World War I. For South Asia, it's really during the negotiations take place, mostly during World War II, and the deal is finalized immediately after the war. The life of Dominion constitutions, actually, Pakistan is a great example for that, is profoundly influenced uh, by the Cold War international context. And I think usually I talk about Tamizuddin litigation as a good example of that, <coughs> as a Cold War, uh, as the courtroom, as a Cold War theater. They're hybrid uh, Westminster-derived constitutional structures. Um, and the idea, as I said before, is that these new states acquire independence from London in matters of internal and foreign policy, but constitutionally they retain a link, which is constitutionally they're still under the sovereignty of the British crown. And then the question becomes, what does it mean <coughs> in legal and practical and political terms, this link? Uh, in some countries like India, it didn't matter quite so much. In Pakistan, it assumed uh, a really, really great importance. What's the functions? Dominion constitutions do two things. Um, they're a frame of government during the transition period, so they're the basis for ordinary, ordinary politics, but also they're the legal <coughs> basis for drafting a permanent constitution. So we're arguing that they're really, really quite important. What we focus on is the second point. So we look at dominion constitutions as independent <coughs> variables, as institutions that structure politics at key foundational constitutional moments of decolonizing nations. The argument is that this period is so important and it had a very long-term impact <coughs> and legacy in terms of the power balance between the various institutional actors and the legal base of independent constitution making. And I give it over to Luke <laughs> to talk to us about Ireland. Great, so thank you, Mara. So that sets the scene, and we now have to move on to the contextual studies of Ireland and Pakistan. So how did we get to dominion status in Ireland? Well, before we 
get into that, it's worth noting that during the negotiations between the, the Irish um, and the British over dominion status, the term dominion itself was a little bit controversial because the Irish said, doesn't dominion imply property? Doesn't that mean you still own us? You know? And one of the ways in which the British managed to massage that issue of what does dominion mean was to point to the biblical understanding of dominion, which is that God gave dominion to Adam and Eve, uh, the, the dominion of the, of the earth. So the idea that dominion is not property, it is, <coughs> is freedom. And so this idea of dominion status begins, really, when Great Britain and Ireland become a united kingdom in 1801 with the Act of Union. Um, essentially, during the 19th century, there becomes more and more uh, kind of unsettlement and there's a, a restiveness in Ireland about the lack of a domestic parliament. And this becomes very important within British politics. It's known as the Irish question. It becomes the defining issue of the late 19th century. Particularly Prime Minister Gladstone has to spend an inordinate amount of time uh, dealing with this. Um, the quest for home rule accelerates during the early 20th century at a time when the Liberal Party um, wins elections in 1905 and in 1910. And essentially the Irish Home Rule Party begins to, to uh, get a position where they can hold the balance of power in Westminster. And so home rule as a principle, that there will be an, a parliament for Ireland, becomes a, a very powerful idea. And it essentially has almost become accepted by the time World War I breaks out. It's on the statute books. It's simply suspended. Now, there's a whole historical question that I'm not going to go into. Um, professor Roy Foster is an expert on this. He, he's the retired professor of Irish history here at Oxford. If you see him around the streets of Oxford, you feel free to ask him uh, and tell him myself. <coughs> um, but there's a whole question of whether Irish home rule would have happened regardless of the war because um, the unionist minority in Northern Ireland, which was not yet called Northern Ireland, uh, was already agitating and there, were, there was a, a unionist mil militia already being set up prior to World War I. So Ireland was heading for a civil war no matter what. Um, but um, what did happen was World War I. During World War I, a group of Irish rebels who didn't uh, actually command a real popular um, ma a majority of, of support at the time um, engaged in a violent uprising at Easter 1916. It was not a military success. It was suppressed um, within a short space of time by the British and put down pretty savagely with immediate executions of the leaders and so on. Um, but the impact of it and the post-rising period was such that it essentially obliterated what was left of support for home rule within Ireland. The, the violence, the, the kind of... Um, the suppression uh, by the British in the immediate post-1916 period um, leads to a situation that when you have the first uh, UK election in 1918 after the end of World War I, the Irish Home Rule Party is decimated and Sinn Féin, the Nationalist Party, uh, wins uh, a huge majority of the Irish seats. And those MPs do not take their seats at Westminster. They instead form a shadow parliament in Dublin known as the first door. And 
in kind of very shortly after that, we have um, the renewal of hostilities, a new war of independence fought against British forces by the Irish Republican Army headed by Michael Collins. So we're talking about guerrilla tactics, car bombings, assassinations of British uh, figures and the police and so on. Um, this becomes this makes the situation of governing Ireland unmanageable for the British because you have a shadow parliament that's operating um, a shadow court system, it's operating, um, it's, it's administering loans to, to farmers and things like that. And essentially the, um, the country becomes, well, not completely ungovernable, but very difficult to govern uh, from the point of view of the British, which leads to negotiations. And these negotiations eventually re- result in, an, in a deal. And the deal is there will be dominion status for the Irish Free State. But the Irish Free State is not the entire island of Ireland because 20, only 26 of the 32 counties will be considered to be part of the Irish Free State. Instead, six counties will remain within uh, the, 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 the union of Great Britain and now Northern Ireland. So this new entity is created in the north of Ireland and they remain in the UK to this day. Now, one of the things that's very interesting if you look at the studies that have been done, and I'm a bit l- more fortunate than, than Mara in the sense that a lot of Irish historians and Irish lawyers have already done a lot of the archival, archival work here in the, in the National Archives in Dublin and at Kew. Um, it's pretty clear from the testimonies of the negotiators on the British and the Irish side when it comes to what will the Irish constitution look like, what will the Irish state look like, that the British are able to exert quite a lot of influence over what that eventual text will be. So the Irish, for example, have a kind of idea of popular sovereignty that the British have no interest in and have never really had an interest in until the Brexit referendum which has made Nigel Farage the big champion of popular sovereignty. But it's not really a British thing. Um, popular sovereignty, parliamentary sovereignty is what is uh, important here um, so the idea of having popular sovereignty in the form of um, referendums for constitutional change is something that the British are not in favour of the idea that the legislature should be able to dissolve itself that the executive should not be able to dissolve the legislature um, is something else that the Irish put forward um, and the whole, the whole nature of how to um, make a workable model of constitutional rights that still is enough uh, of a parallel with the Westminster model to satisfy the British while being something new and being something popular um, uh, is, is the, the question that has to be resolved. So the British negotiators eventually convinced the Irish to drop the idea that the legislature should be able to dissolve itself and to, to they, they push and they eventually successfully get the Irish to agree that there should be the power of the executive to, to dissolve the legislature. They emphasize the flexibility of that model. Mara's already talked about it, the badged idea of the efficient secret, the elected dictatorship that m- makes government work. Um, this is repeated in the later negotiations, uh, um, this idea that the flexibility of the Westminster model is really the way to go. But even though the Irish concede on that point they do get a lot of what they want. And this is a sea change from 
what is the traditional British constitutional provision. Number one, there's a list of liberal constitutional rights, including to liberty, property, religion, speech, so on, in the Irish Constitution of 1922. Um, there's no parallel with that in the British Constitution of the time, and there w- wouldn't be until 2000 when the Human Rights Act came into force. <coughs> the use of proportional representation in elections, again, the British negotiators thought that was quaint, right? Um, now, again, in, in our kind of situation where, where we're governed by a party that won 24% of the electorate, um, proportional representation again becomes an enormous question in 2016. Um, in 1916 and 1921-22, it's basically the way the Irish uh, want to run their elections. Eventually, the British say, well, I mean, who cares? If you want PR, you can have it. So PR becomes uh, the system used for Irish elections. It still is today. Um, also, there is a provision to allow constitutional referendums to allow uh, amendments to happen, sorry, to the Constitution. They must pass uh, um, the the popular referendum. And, again, this is not something that that you have in the British Constitution. But there's a transition period. For eight years after 1922, you can have amendments by ordinary legislation. And this power is only what is intended, and we know this from the way that it was negotiated, it's intended only to make sure that the system would work. So it was meant to only be used for minor kind of procedural amendments. It wasn't really considered to be something that would be used for massive constitutional change. Um, And then, of course, the executive council idea. So this is the governing executive of the Irish Free State. That's going to be the executive. The effective um, comparison in the British model is the cabinet. And the president of the executive council will be able to command a majority of the legislature. Now, this is controversial internally because it's... Well, there's two elements to the controversy. Number one, it's mere dominion status, not full independence. It's not a republic. Um, So this is not what was promised in 1916, and it still has this idea of dominion, this idea of property, um, that... That offends the, the the more militant nationalists, and number two, it accepts partition. Partition is regimented by this deal, and so the debate divides Irish politics into two factions that eventually become the pro-treaty Fine Gael party, um, led by Michael Collins and other figures, William Cros- Cosgrove, and the anti-treaty party that becomes Fianna Fáil. And that's headed by Eamon de Valera. And, you know, it might be of interest to you that that's really been the the split in Irish politics for the last century um, has been a uh, treaty split rather than a left-right split so much. Um, And even after 1922, even after the deal is signed and the Irish Free State comes into being, the militant nationalists... um, headed by Eamon de Valera, do not take their seats in the Irish Parliament in the Dáil. Um, they continue to support military activities against the new Irish Free State. Um, they, continue, they continue to attack officers of the pro-treaty side who are now in control of the Free State. Um, and this leads to the assassination of Michael Collins in 1922. Um, and 
it obviously leads to a great amount of um, uncertainty into how stable this new state will be, given that you have this large minority of politicians and supporters who refuse to accept the legitimacy of the new free state parliament. So as the 1920s progress, in order to deal with ongoing militant violence, the Executive Council seizes more and more constitutional power. In provisions Article 47 and 50 of the 1922 Constitution, they allow for a temporary period of eight years, as I said earlier, to amend the Constitution. That gets extended. In other words, they use their amending power to amend the time they have to use that amending power. So this is very dodgy, to put it bluntly, from a constitutional perspective. This limited power effectively becomes unlimited. And through this mechanism, they're able to amend the Irish Constitution to insert um, a new provision, Article 2A, which takes precedence over all other articles, including liberty, including um, all of the other uh, free speech and other um, rights. Um, And the liberal rights are effectively subjected to the will of the executive. The executive also attempts to... um, get rid of judicial review with regard to the military tribunals it set up to try militants who've been attacking members of the Irish Free State. Um, so there's summary execution of, of militants, and it's a very draconian procedure, um, even by the standards of the time, 1920s, 1930s. So the opportunity is there for an illiberal dictatorship to take effect in Ireland. There's no doubt about it. If you look at what, what else was happening in Europe during that period... If you look at how draconian the Irish constitution was, the potential was there. So how do we get to the law in all of this? Well, it's important that we study um, what happened in 1921-22. So the first thing in 1921 is the Anglo-Irish Treaty. That accepts the parameters of the free state and the relationship with Britain. Um, And it essentially makes makes the Irish free state subservient to the Westminster Parliament in a number of different respects. Um, The Constitution of the Irish Free State then is agreed, and that comes into force in 1922. It's legally accepted as valid for two reasons, and this is what's fascinating about the British model. You have the Imperial Parliament at Westminster that passes an Act of Parliament accepting the treaty and accepting the Irish Constitution. Then you have a vote of the Irish Dáil sitting as a constituent assembly, and they accept the two documents as valid. So both of these um, models, these models of acceptance happen in parallel. The Irish say, well, it's the legitimacy of our our representative constituent assembly that gives the documents (coughs) their power. The British say, well, we've passed legislation, so that makes it okay. Now, the terms that are part of the treaty and and are reflected in the constitution are the classic dominion model. The governor general appointed as the king's representative in Ireland. The right of appeal to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council um, from the Irish uh, courts. The requirement of taking an oath to the Crown before taking a seat in the Irish Parliament, known as the Oireachtas, made of the Dáil and the Shannon. That was one of the major stumbling blocks for why the anti-treaty side refused to take their seats in the Dáil. They refused to, to give the oath to the Crown. And importantly, the treaty specified that no amendments could be made to the Irish Constitution of 22 that would go against the 21 Treaty. So that rigidly um, entrenched the treaty principles in the Irish Constitution. Now, there's obviously a tension there. And that tension is exposed when Eamon de Valera does an about-face midway through the 1920s, and he says, actually, we will take our seats in the door. And after winning um, 
uh, election, he becomes the new president of the Executive Council. And unlike the previous uh, administration, he comes in with what he considers to be a mandate to essentially disintegrate the entire um, uh, state architecture. And so um, he, in addition to bringing in this draconian legislation to take on militants, he also begins to legislate to remove these badges of inferiority, like the governor general and so on. Now, what's interesting is that there are two seminal cases of the era, one in the Irish Supreme Court and one in the Privy Council, that um, give us an explanation for how this was allowed to happen by the judiciary. Um, but the rationale for both courts is different. In the state Ryan and, Ryan and Lennon, this was an Irish Supreme Court decision in 1934, where two prisoners were detained under the executive powers, draconian powers. Um, they challenged their right to habeas corpus and to liberty under the 1922 Constitution, and they said that the powers that were brought in to detain them were unconstitutional because of the way that limited power was made, it was extended for another eight years and then used in this way. And the Irish Supreme Court said that the decision to amend the Constitution was legal because there was nothing explicit in the text of the document that said you couldn't amend it for another eight years or a hundred years or a thousand years. And if the Constitution that was accepted by the Constituent Assembly did not place limitations <coughs> on that article, then 